Today on the show, we have Dr. Paul De Spinesi, who is a political scientist. And the idea that science can be applied to human affairs is really fascinating to me because, well, to both of us, because we know that biology is really only half physics. There's also this whole behavioral aspect that involves motivations and conflicts of interests and everything else under the sun. So we had the opportunity to imagine how government could operate in an, an ideal sense. And that requires us to talk about the goals of government from an objective standpoint. And Dr. De Spinesi has this really cool periodic table of associations that he uses to derive what a just law looks like. And this ties into him being inspired by the work of Dewey Larson, who is a, a physicist and polymath. Um, from the 20th century. And it also leads into some really far out ideas about the power grid structures and really just the potential for a more optimal civilization. So enjoy this conversation. If it brings up ideas of other people we could talk to, let us know. There's so many loose ends out there with regard to these wildly complex behavioral subjects that we need to open up more investigations. So get in touch with us, shoot us an email, leave a comment down below, and we'll follow up eventually. Enjoy the conversation, and we'll see you next week. The scientific revolution starts now. Do you remember a time when people felt satisfied with their parties? Because it's interesting how there's only there's these two parties that dominate everything now, but we were just looking into it yesterday, and it seemed like we were studying the 14th Amendment, and it seemed like there were all these different parties in the past, and I wonder if people have been more or less satisfied with identifying with parties in the past, because right now it seems like everybody feels alienated from both parties. Like, if you look at the... Uh, Congress of 1860 and 1864, which was uh, at the time of the Civil War, so it was Lincoln's Congress, there were, there were parties mm. that took up 5, 10, 15 percent of the congressional representation. And, you know, they're parties that you never hear about. It's like the know-nothing party, the, the abolitionist Democrats, the the, I don't remember the rest of them, but it seems like that disappeared in our modern political conception. And so, do you have a sense for when that went away? And well, there's always there's there, there's always been some uh, small parties, but the, the um, way we structure our elections makes it very difficult for third parties to ever elect anybody to office. They do serve an important function. They develop new ideas and push them. And if they start catching on, one or both of the other parties grabs them. Because mm. it seems like they actually occupied significant pieces of Congress in the past, which is yeah, occasionally. But uh, of course, one of the minor parties might sometime uh, become a major party, like the um, the um, Labour Party in England replaced the Liberal Party as the main alternative party. <clears throat> back at the beginning of the uh, 20th century. Do you have a sense for why there is such a resistance 
to third party? I mean, so you said that it's the system of the election. It's, it's well, I'll, I'll tell you. Yeah, I'll tell you. Um, <clears throat> let's say your favorite person is Ralph Nader in the 2000 election between Gore and Bush the second. If you vote for Nader, you probably otherwise would have voted for Gore. So voting for Nader, in effect, is making it a little more likely that Bush, who is your least favorite candidate, will get elected. So this tends to discourage voting for a third-party candidate. Now, there is a reform that has been recently adopted in Alaska, which will, uh, if it was uh, widely imitated, would um, tend to uh, mitigate this problem because it's the, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's um, a single primary election instead of party primaries separately for the parties. And then with the top four candidates in that single primary going into the general election, which is ranked choice. Mm, so you right. can vote. In other words, if we'd had ranked choice in 2000, people could have voted for Nader as their first choice, but then put down Al Gore or, for that matter, Bush. Yeah, that's such a brilliant idea. Choice. It's like people always jump to the conclusion that democracy doesn't work and it's broken and all of this stuff. And it's mm -hmm. like we have barely scraped the surface of how to optimize our choice making. You know, right. we, we've put ranked choice into effect just in our own lives. Like when we're just trying to figure out what we want to do, like what movie are we going to watch? Mm -hmm. and, and it really does solve problems in a way that a simple knockout election can't accomplish. Well, this is especially interesting because a lot of us have recently identified one of the major factors causing the intense political polarization. And that is these party primaries. Now, in the party primary, <clears throat> let's say you have an incumbent that, in Congress that had been willing to make some compromises with the other party. There's a danger that that person will get primaried. And in the primary, the party primaries, the people who are most likely to vote are the extremists on the right end of the spectrum for the Republicans and on the left end of the spectrum for the Democrats. Okay. So if you start making any compromises with the other party, you're likely to get primaried. And uh, the more conservative person will try to uh, unseat you if you're a Republican and contrary in the, in the Democrats. So if we were to go to this ranked choice voting, uh, that would greatly reduce the pressure. You know, the problem is now that if you are making reasonable compromises with the other party, you're not going to get reelected. You won't even get into the general election, even if you might have been able to win that because you appealed to a certain number of people in the other party. What are the barriers so, to enacting a different form of voting? Like, uh, there, aren't any barrier. there, are, there, are, there aren't any structural barriers. Uh, Alaska was able to do it. Um, By what and means? It's, done, it's, it's done at the state level. And uh, the lady who uh, came up with this idea for the Alaska system, who's written a very fascinating book called The, uh, the Politics Industry, uh, very excellent book. She's co-author of that. Um, and she points out that if even a few states were to adopt this uh, approach, 
that that would put enough extra people willing to make some intelligent compromises into Congress that it could change things very, very dramatically. Mm, I can see it. Yeah. So as a, you're, you're a political scientist, uh, right, that's, right. this is your background and people often give us pushback when we delve into these squishy sciences, right? Like even biology, it's, it doesn't have these nice material explanations for what's happening. Mm-hmm. And you've constructed a pretty cool model for uh, examining the political landscape, and particularly uh, almost with an engineering focus towards how can we design a better government system that has less corruptions and that we're able to actually handle and uh, categorize the different types of corruptions that emerge. And there's a bunch of things I want to talk to you about, in- including uh, the grid and space weather and Dewey Larson, but maybe we can start off by just talking a little bit um, about your conception of governments and, and how we can get better handles on it through this periodic table that you've constructed. Now, the, the periodic table is an effort to summarize the interlocking concepts that I've worked up for analyzing um, government and, and uh, human associations in general, of which government is one of the most um, one of the most important. <clears throat> I, um, I I think I, I would argue that there, there are um, three characteristics of an ideal government that it is democratic, that it abide by the rule of law meaning that it only imposes sanctions on people who have violated really general rules. Mm. Uh, an example of a non-really general rule would be that any black person who doesn't ride on the back of the bus shall be fined. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, you don't have rules that pre-classify people. You, you say anybody who does something shall have the following punishment. Mm. Okay, so democracy, the rule of law, and universality. Now, obviously, no existing government uh, qualifies on that final ground, but but I would argue that that is um, certainly um, from the point of view of an of an ideal government that democracy plus the rule of law plus universalism. Universalism here is that the same laws apply to everyone. In the country? No, universalism means that you have a world government under, under present conditions. Interesting. So well, you think that that's an aspirational direction? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's not going to be gotten to very soon. Which why is that ideal? To... Yeah, it seems like that, that creates a massive bureaucracy that's going to be quite difficult to navigate. Like the bigger things get, the harder they are for us to keep our hand, hands on. That isn't necessarily the case. An awful lot of the current bureaucracies in the world are military bureaucracies. And uh, if we had a universal government, this might cut down on our need to spend so huge amounts of money on military. There might still need to be some military to put down revolts and secession movements and things like that. But, uh, But bureaucracy has tended to grow in times of war or high international tension. You take a look at World War II, for example, and the American government um, 
bureaucracy has been much larger since then, and also, of course, the Cold War. Hmm. So the world government wouldn't necessarily need to be very, um, very big. How are you measuring the size uh, of the uh, of the bureaucracies at that point? Do you mean per capita jobs in government? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And of course, it's it's kind of tricky measuring, uh, you know, how many people are employed by the federal government because we have people who are directly employed in the military and the civil service and the foreign service. But we also have large numbers of people who are working for the federal government on contract with corporations and universities that are doing research, for example, with federal money. And one of the attractivenesses of uh, contracting out instead of hiring people to do the work in-house, as it is, uh, is that it avoids charges of an even more bloated federal bureaucracy. It also is easier, easier to discontinue a contract than it is to lay off civil servants. Oh, you mean like of... accusations by charge? That's what you mean by charges. It still costs a lot. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Because it seems like almost spending on bureaucracy would be a better <laughs> marker for, for how big it is, ultimately. Yeah. Well, I, uh, it's, you know, in some respects, I think current government is too big, and in some respects, I think it's too small. So it's all a matter of uh, where... where the, the details. Mm, mm. What's the uh, Goldilocks zone look like? I can't really tell you. Mm. Uh, but, but you know it when you see it. Yeah. <laughs> you might. You might. I mean, the, something that, that concerns me is that I feel like people become much less happy when government gets to be progressively larger and larger because it feels like the government doesn't know them personally and their interests can't be addressed. And so what it requires of people to actually get their problems addressed is to associate into progressively larger and larger groups, which is why we see these political action committees. And then you see super political action committees. And so everyone who wants to get the government to listen to them is having to throw their lot in with the group. But because the group is an aggregate group, it means that if you have just one issue, you're going to be thrown in with a bunch of other issues that you may or may not agree and right. we, were, we were watching, uh, we were watching uh, Lincoln, which is the Daniel Day-Lewis movie that came out a few years ago about, the, about Lincoln trying to get the 13th Amendment passed. Oh, right, right. And there was this really interesting scene where someone came to him, a petitioner, and was asking about ownership of some toll booth in some city. And they were like, you know, John Quincy Adams, we have paperwork from him saying that this was our toll booth, but now it's been taken by the Confederacy and we want it back. And, or no, it was, it was given to somebody else uh, on, the, on the union side. And it just struck me how unbelievable that situation was in the present day, that you would have somebody who could show up and directly petition the president. It's just a couple. It's like, a, and I, I assume that it's not wholly fictionalized. Oh, yeah. some, some, of, some of the earlier presidents actually had days when people could drop in to the White House and uh, press, their, press their case. Yeah, I was shocked. But, but uh, you, the, the you, can't, you can't do that. You can't do that anymore. And it's a matter of scale. Yeah, the phrase, right. I'm going to call this person, used to mean go and visit them. <laughs> it's like, I'll tell him I'll call him tomorrow. And it's like, that means he's going to his house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so I think that there's something inherently alienating about the fact that you can't go and talk to your quote-unquote boss, right? Because... 
the the person who's in charge of the bureaucracy of the democracy of the government whatever sure it's a figurehead but there you could even go talk to kings you know you could show up and you could you could could plead your case and the king would rule and then you would leave and it was it was functional but now we live in a world where you know you're, you're speaking to some faceless aspect of a system where they have a set of rules under which they operate and if you can if you can get them to see things your way then maybe they'll be able to give you the thing that you want but what you're really doing is you're learning to game the bureaucratic system rather than interacting with humans who are actually paying attention to what it is that you want and need and it seems like making a larger and larger government to the degree of the world i just i can't i can't imagine that continuing in this sort of pyramid sense where there's somebody sitting on top who's in charge like the you don't need to concern you don't need to concern yourself with this in the near future let me say because i don't see how a world government uh you know there, there's two ways that one could be brought about one would be by uh, like the way that germany was unified by the military might of prussia uh or the, the way the united states was formed by a, a constitutional convention where separate political entities agree to enter into a larger framework. But I don't see either of these. First of all, I don't think that a military approach to creating a world government would be at all desirable because it wouldn't likely be in a government that would qualify under my other criteria of democracy and the rule of law. Um, And um, so I I just don't, uh, and I can't imagine a, a constitutional convention for the world that would be successful, although I participated in a constitutional convention, as it were, for the world in 1963 in Denver. There was a group called the World Committee for a World Constitutional Convention. And we had a uh, pre-convention convention in Denver, which I stopped off at. I, I, I was going by train from Oregon to my uh, graduate school at Johns Hopkins, and I just stopped off in Denver for a few days to take in this this convention. And it was, uh, you know, very nice people, but I I don't see it very likely that we're going to do this. So in in the meantime, we've got to muddle along with diplomacy. And I would argue there is no such thing as an ideal foreign policy, because the very need to have a foreign policy means there are other separate entities that you're having to deal with and that is inherently non-ideal. So you can find so many maybe, different you, the you, you can find the least you can find the least bad foreign policy maybe under certain circumstances, but you're not going to find an ideal because the very need to have foreign policy. Well, it reflects it reflects differences in values between cultures. Ultimately, you know, people yeah. have wholly different traditions, different ways of looking at the cosmos, at looking at at the world. And so the idea that they're all going to want to conduct their affairs similarly might be a little misplaced. But at the same time, you know, like I teach astronomy and I'm thinking all the time about what it looks like for humans to venture out into the, into the interstellar regions. And it's hard to imagine that we'll ever accomplish that without finding a way to essentially all work together in a way that's, that's not combative. If we don't find ways to work together, we're not going to be existing for much longer because almost all of the key problems in the world now 
are uh, only solvable at the world level. The uh, the um, uh, greenhouse effect problem, uh, the uh, the energy problem. I would argue uh, to to solve that uh, greenhouse problem. Um, epidemics uh, don't respect boundaries. So so I would say that uh, that uh, if we don't learn how to hang together we're going to hang separately as somebody said once right so it seems like that, that we have to learn how to hang together in a way that allows people autonomy as well like this idea of like a world governance it seems not only impossible but it seems like it ignores the basic cultural uh derivations of values and it wouldn't so, have wouldn't, wouldn't have to do that uh, you, you could have you still have national governments and local governments and city governments, and a lot of the governing would go on at that level. Uh, and so, 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 There's yeah, so you wouldn't issues that are like on the order of uh, abortion or capital punishment or mm -hmm. homelessness, and these are these are these are uh, wedge issues where the people mm -hmm. fall on opposite sides of them, and there's not really a way that you can easily compromise where you find a middle ground where you, you know, some people can have abortions and other people can't because if you have a philosophical disagreement that abortion is murder versus uh, the fetus isn't alive yet, there, there's not a middle ground where you can make a law that satisfies both people. Or with homelessness, if you're like, look, people who are on the street are doing drugs and need to be treated in a specific way in order to induce them to get off of drugs versus people on the street are victims of a corrupt system and need to be helped. It's like, those don't have a lot of overlap. And well, so on, on abortion, just let's, let's just take the abortion example. Uh, there does seem to be uh, the possibility of a good deal of consensus, not, 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 not 100%, but a good deal on the idea that abortions should, uh, you know, you don't want uh, last-minute abortions of an hour before the baby is due to be born, uh, but that they should not be illegal earlier in the... In fact, in fact uh, something almost along the line of the policy that was, was thought up by the Supreme Court in, um, in, in its decision um, on, on Roe, uh, where, where there's no restrictions at all, for the first trimester, and then gradually, uh, more and more restrictions are are allowed, and that uh, and it was regrettable that the Supreme Court ever got into that. Uh, although they did come up with what I think might not be a bad policy, but of course, the Supreme Court isn't supposed to do policy; it's supposed to be a court of law. And I always felt like that Roe decision didn't have a constitutional leg to stand on. And that's why the uh, the pro-abortion people were always so nervous that it was going to get reversed because it really didn't have a very strong uh, basis in the Constitution or in our constitutional history. So the more proper channel would have been to try to create an amendment to deal with it, you think? Well, uh, it was being done uh, state by state and states were experimenting and there was a movement in, in the direction, I believe, of uh, greater um, allowance for that. Uh, but the problem is, you know, here, here's the Supreme Court uh, making a decision which is uh, really uh, beyond, should have been beyond its, um, its scope. But, the, so, but on policy grounds, they came up with a pretty good policy. Trouble is, they aren't supposed to do policy. 
So it's been such a can of worms to try to even discuss this issue intelligently, and I don't think the Supreme Court helped things at all. But I think that the point that I was trying to make is not whether or not the Supreme Court should have gotten involved. The question is, how do you have a single government for people that have such strong ideas and the belief that their idea is morally right? Right, because have you have you read Jonathan? Hayes? That is a that is a difficulty, and that is one reason why you're not going to get a world government in the near future. But, but uh, as 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 communications, uh, you know, it's possible that there would be a convergence of ways of thinking as people begin to begin to share more and more of the um, of the pictures of the world that the new communications technology allows. It's possible. I don't know if it will or not. But yeah. uh, but I don't know that we ought to continue discussing this world government thing because that is sort of a, a very minor part of what I uh, what I like to, um, to to think about. I mean, that that I I guess one last thing that I want to add to it is that I can imagine there being a world government if the world shrinks, where you have people that as a group, let's say, have enough resources and drive to get to Mars and to start a colony. I think that the, the history of humanity is such that people leave, and when they leave, they have a cluster. Like they need an opposition? <laughs> they need like a Mars to, to other, basically? No, I th- no, I'm not saying that the world government will form on Earth. I think that the world government will form on Mars because mm. there's going to be a small, dedicated group of people that shows up and is like, we're going to work on this together. And we have a new set of constraints and requirements because if you look at human evolutionary history, I think that that is what's happened over the, you know, the journey of humanity, as Oded Galore calls it, where you have a transition of humans from... Uh, an evolutionary emergence and they radiate across the planet, but they radiate not randomly. They radiate as cultural groups that travel together and have cohesive social mores. That is what creates the society in the first place. And so I can, I can totally see it moving in that direction, but maybe not on earth. And I think that it would be, it would, it would probably be better that way because I don't know that old systems can be retrofitted to, to be better than they are. I think at some point you just have to move forward. And we used to have the frontier. We used to have a place where humans had never been before. You know, I'm not even, I'm not talking about the American frontier. I'm talking about the frontier of radiating out of Africa. Mm -hmm. Let me suggest something that I have written about before, and I'm going to do another piece on this in the near future. But something that would be short of a world government, it would not be a world government, but it would be a world institution which would um, do what a world government in one limited area would do if there were a world government. We don't have any principled, institutionalized way of redrawing boundaries between countries. We're we're seeing an example of that right now in uh, Ukraine. Okay, and then there's also the issue of the China Formosa, uh, Taiwan. uh, question. So what I'm thinking is that it might just be possible to get a multilateral treaty establishing a world boundaries commission, which would be somewhat of an analogy to the National Labor Relations Board in the United States. 
Now, the National Labor Relations Board, um, when, when employees of a particular place are interested in organizing, there's often a question of what employees will be inside the bargaining unit and what employees will be outside the bargaining unit. Okay, now you can't dissolve, you can't resolve that question by voting because you've got to decide who's in the unit before you can decide who's going to vote. So the National Labor Relations Board holds a hearing where they hear arguments about what the scope of the bargaining unit should be. And they then make an authoritative decision on that. And then the workers in that unit vote to see whether they want to certify a sole bargaining agent. Okay, by analogy, you, you, you can't decide where national boundaries ought to be drawn or redrawn by voting, uh, pure and simple, because you don't know who the electorate is going to be. Should it be the people in Ukraine as a whole? Should it be the people in those disputed areas in Ukraine? You know, uh, there's no, no uh, principled way to ascertain, to make that decision. But this World Boundary Commission, when there's a challenge to existing boundaries, could hold hearings, could determine who the, uh, what, what the unit should be in which a vote is taken, and then you could have a vote conducted not by uh, people with guns in their hands, like happened recently in the, uh, the so-called referendums in those occupied parts of um, Ukraine. And, uh, you could, and then the borders could be adjusted if that was what was desired by the people. Now, this would not be a government. It wouldn't have jurisdiction. It, wouldn't, it couldn't legislate on anything. All it could do would be this very limited job of uh, facilitating the change of borders. Now, you may say, well, why can't we just agree that um, all existing borders will be sacrosanct, which is what we thought we had done at the end of World War II. Uh, the problem is that doesn't work. And if you look at a historical map of Europe for the last thousand years, you will be struck by how often political units have expanded, contracted, borders have shifted, um, and regimes have come and gone, and we need some way of uh, allowing that to happen without having to have these idiotic wars like we're having right now between Russia, and, or maybe I should say special military operations uh, between Russia and Ukraine. So that, that might be possible. That might be possible. It's worth talking about. It wouldn't be a government, wouldn't have general jurisdiction, wouldn't have any authority to tax couldn't enact laws that would have to be observed in all the countries in the world. Very limited. But that might be Why enough. would people agree? To, why would the countries agree to adopt that? Why, what would incentivize everyone to... to well, they could, save, they could save a lot of money on, uh, on military. I mean, the money we spend on the military now is largely, uh, if, if it's successful, it leads to a draw in which nothing happens. But don't the industrialists uh, love spending money on the military? I mean, aren't people just getting rich? No, the, the people who are selling to the military love it, yes. Yeah, that's but, what I'm talking about. There's, there's, other, there's, other, there's other, other, other interests that would love spending money on other things. But aren't the people that are making the most money the ones who have the most power in, in many of these republics and in, and in the different oligarchies around the world? Well, they are very influential. But if you could convince people that their interests would not be served by, by uh, uh, buying so many weapons, 
it like, might be possible to do something. But if uh, there, there's a, see, there's, there's a, you know, the principle of differential mobilization. It's easier to mobilize a small number of outfits that have a large amount of money at stake, like like armaments makers, than it is to organize large numbers of people like consumers who each have a small amount at stake, but who in the aggregate have just as much at stake as the um, as the large guys mm. so there is there is an inherent obstacle here i feel like there's but, a feeling that the, that the large numbers don't have as much power as the small super powerful industrial sector that but, might be because they can't agree on stuff right i feel like that's kind of a, a quintessential problem with the society in which we live which is that people can't seem to get over their their cultural and social differences in a way that allows them to align with their interests, with their shared interest at heart, right? Because everybody yeah, yeah. wants to make sure that their pet interest, their pet preference is not swept under the rug. And when you join into a coalition of vast quantities of people, somebody's opinions are going to have to take a back seat. Like you, your cultural preferences, your, your, your social preferences have to be less important than something that you're trying to do for all of society and that feels really difficult to accomplish with you. it is project, difficult it is difficult Ma max Weber, so max Weber, yeah max Weber, the uh, german sociologist said that politics in his essay politics is a vocation which is a wonderful essay he said politics is a slow boring of hard boards it's not for the people uh hearted it, it's not something you go into lightly uh, but it's uh, but it is it's, it, he says it's a challenge that is worth uh, worth 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 facing. Of course, I mean my my point is the scope is so enormous <clears throat> with something like reining in industrial spending on or congressional spending on the military or or silent spending on it. Right, there's reportedly trillions of dollars just completely missing that have been going to different special military operations around the globe. And the, the project of addressing that as a people, as just voters, is beyond most people's comprehension. It feels so far out of their reins that most people are just kind of like, I don't know, like, uh, what can we do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing about that really super but, powerful... But there's, there's, a, there's a little bit of doggerel that I'm... If, 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 fut, if futility, F-U-T-I-L-I-T-Y, if... Utility were indeed my creed. To state that fact would be an act that would negate my creed indeed. So there's no use in going around saying everything is futile. You have to give it the old college try. Mm. Oh, for sure. I, I just wonder <laughs> if there's a way. I wonder what the way is by which people are able to. I mean, of course, your periodic table could help, I think, too, but ways to simplify the issue such that solutions become salience out of this wildly complex matrix of options for which people can act and the different groups they can support it's not it's not such a simple solution for how how do we get control of our congress for instance right it's not like the voting really seems to, to matter too much it, it what really seems to matter is who's propping up the congress people which happen to be oftentimes the super enormous spenders not well, we have, we have this problem now. This is where that polarization comes in and the, the problem with party primaries. Uh, we, um, 
we have this problem. I'm not, now I've lost my track, my train of thought here. That's uh, okay. I think we're just so, kind of uh, here. Here, here, here it is. The parties now are tending to nominate people who appeal to the extremists within each party. And then when you get to the general election, it forces people to choose which extremist they dislike the least. Mm -hmm. And they can't afford to vote for some third person or third party that they would prefer. And so that is where I think that ranked choice voting <clears throat> idea might, might actually um, be, be very strategic. Yeah, I love that. <clears throat> Are there other solutions that fall out of your periodic table analysis that can help us design better systems of government? No, uh, the uh, well, the periodic table suggests um, uh, what um, that, that the ideal government would be one that observes the rule of law. It, um, only imposing sanctions, deprivations of life, liberty, and property on people who have violated truly general rules. And the theory here is that if the rule applies to everybody and not just to some people, it's less likely to be an obnoxious rule. Mm -hmm. So just defining what a good law is versus a, a law that will lead to problems down the line. Well, there's a, distance, a difference between a good law and a pseudo-law. A pseudo-law, which has its own location in my periodic table, is something where the government imposes sanctions on somebody who hasn't violated a general rule of action. Mm. Now, to give you a specific example of that, I give you the military draft. Because people are not drafted because they have done anything that violates a, a general rule. Uh, the, the rules about drafting are inherently pseudo-laws. They apply only, uh, so far, to men. They only apply to people of a certain age. They don't even apply to everybody of that age. And, and at the, you know, um, at, towards the end of the draft in the United States, we had a lottery, where if people lost the lottery, and they were pre-selected to go into the lottery by age and, and um, sex, um, and you go in the lottery, and you, you either win or you lose. I ask you to imagine if we had an income tax where uh, only people who had lost in a lottery would be subject to that tax. That would obviously be an outrage. We've never yeah, gone that far. Some of the gamblers out there would go for that. Oh, yeah. But yeah, sure. that makes perfect sense. I mean, so the solution is obviously just to draft everybody, right? I, mean, well, I think that that would really push the question, right? If you if you made the law applicable to everyone and suddenly everyone had skin in the game, the laws would probably change. And there's probably a role right, for right. for every, you know, if you want to if you need to have an army all of a sudden, there's probably a role for everybody, honestly. I mean, I think Well, now I've 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 uh, I've dealt with that uh, in the instructor's manual to my textbook, my college textbook that I wrote. I explained how you could have a legitimate draft to put it up for class discussion. And that is, if it's truly a national emergency, you draft literally everybody. One-week-old babies, 99-year-old grandpas, current people in the military, including generals. Now, since you can't pay them all at the level that a general would get, <clears throat> they've all got to get paid 
at the level of a private. And this would then mean that the generals would be on very short rations. But I said, uh, since they are very patriotic people, and if it was really such an emergency, they would be very happy to make that sound. You know, I was being pretty, pretty sarcastic. But, but it is, you know, the, the people, the, the, the children could be ordered to continue in school. Uh, they, they also serve who only sit and wait, as it is said. And so you could have, you know, that, that would be an idea of a draft where you draft everybody. And you have to pay them all equally because you've repudiated the market as a way of um, making decisions. And therefore, the only remaining thing is to pay them, pay them equally, and, which means a big pay, pay cut for the generals and the admirals. But I, I was being facetious, of course, because this would be politically impossible. Well, yeah, it doesn't totally make sense either. I mean, the no. admirals are essentially PhDs of <laughs> naval warfare. Right. I, I, right. I think that you definitely want to pay people for their commensurate experience, ultimately. Um, but I, I could see it also. Well, I, was, I wasn't advocating this. I was simply trying to explain how, theoretically, you could have a draft that was not illegitimate. Yeah, and there's also an interesting concept of the draft being applied. Like, some people really want to go and shoot people in the face, and some people really would probably prefer to do more civil tasks and, mm -hmm. and there's a way you can imagine something like the CCC being inter injected into the middle of all of this, where there's, there's a place for a draft that doesn't necessarily involve fighting for people as, as well. Infrastructure draft. Yeah. <laughs> make, make America nice for, for the first <laughs> for the time. First, <laughs> for the first time in a long time. <clears throat> cool. So this, uh, this, this periodic table... Um, in some part was inspired by the work of Dewey Larson. Is that a reasonable thing to, to say? No, uh, it was made possible by the work of Dewey okay, Larson. Okay. Yes, Who's but, Dewey Larson, by the way? Well, he was a, uh, a, a, a gentleman who lived in Portland, Oregon, a graduate of Oregon State University in 1922 as a classmate of Linus Pauling. Uh, he was, uh, professionally, he was chief engineer for a long time of a large uh, utility corporation in Oregon. Um, he, he was bored with his work and very early in life took up some research just as a hobby, uh, asked himself some rather specific questions, and in the process of answering that, he accidentally... <clears throat> came up with an idea that he uh, picked up and ran with and led him to develop a totally new way of looking at the physical universe. Mm. He wrote books, he wrote books about this that are available well, pretty much for free to read online. If you Google Dewey, Dewey B. Larson, uh, he gave lectures, he, he uh, spoke at our college a couple of times. And uh, I corresponded with him for um, about 25 years, asking him questions and arguing with him. Mm. <clears throat> and this theory is called uh, reciprocal theory, is that correct? And I, yeah, the reciprocal theory, uh, because he, his basic point is that the entire physical universe is, a, um, is a, uh, made up of motions, which are relations between space and time. And in these motions, space and time are reciprocally related, that more space, you know, you can have the same speed, but either going more, more space in a unit of time or less time for a unit of space. 
And um, basically, sense, you know, since yeah, basically, yeah, basically, really... yeah, basically, he, uh, his, his fundamental point was that um, where you measure physical things from is very important. And he argued that the uh, zero point from which everything should be measured was the speed of light. And he argued that the physical universe has two sectors, the material sector, which is where we reside, where all velocities are equal to or less than the speed of light, and the cosmic sector, uh, which, um, in which all of the, um, the speeds are either equal to or greater than the speed of light. So he, uh, he sort of doubled the size of the universe. What is this? Uh, hold on, we got to back up just a little bit. Okay, so... Space and time being related makes sense because time is really just a measure of the change with respect to some standard motion. So time is a measure of change of an object's location with respect to some standard measure of change. Mm -hmm. And as far as the material speed of light, you know, that's that kind of makes sense too since it essentially requires, like all materials as they deform require that propagation to take time and light is no different. But this cosmic, this cosmic dimension, can you unpack that for us? So it seems like this is some abstraction that has, that, that is, is this the world of our thoughts or what, what is this cosmic dimension? Oh, the, uh, the cosmic sector is, uh, is not an anti-universe. It is a reciprocal universe in that the all of the equations that describe situations in the material universe are turned over. The numerator becomes the denominator and vice versa. Um, and um, the um, <clears throat> But what is the physical he, he, argue, he argues by the way that, that, uh, that there are three dimensions of time as well as three dimensions of space. And a resident in the cosmic sector would perceive things exactly like we do, except that they would consider what we consider space to be their time, and that they would consider what we consider to be time to be their space. What, what's the physical interpretation of this? Like, so I mean, it's it's an interesting idea, but what is it? What is it founded in? What, Why is it what gains do we make by by, by complicating seeing the world this way? Yeah. Well. <clears throat> One thing, for example, take the cosmic background, background radiation, which is normally interpreted to be a residue from a big bang. Well, in the Larsonian model, the cosmic background radiation is radiation being emitted by the cosmic stars, which have no location in, they, they aren't aggregated in space, they are aggregated um, in time. And so uh, they, they, this cosmic background radiation therefore comes in from all directions because it, it's, it's being emitted by atoms in cosmic stars that are cosmic aggregates rather than... But what, what does that mean? That aggregates. means all the stars that have ever lived, essentially? No. No. I, I don't know that this, it's, it's really very difficult to, to, to try to explain this to, to um, it's a lot of work to understand what Larson was talking about. You know, I've spent the last 40 
maybe 50 years. Let's see, I met him in 1966, I think it was. And so it's been uh, pretty nearly uh, 60 years, I guess. Well, I mean, that's a long time to study something for sure. Yes, yes. And I'm not alone. There, there's a number of people that are still still working on trying to develop some of his ideas. And then you can find them online. Um, but I mean, uh, the, the, the goal of encountering a theory is to understand it, right? So right, we have right. a lot of people on the podcast that will have right. written thousands of pages and will have careers that span... 60 years and what we do is we sit them down and we're like hey how does this work where does this come from let's let's take it apart how does it improve upon the pre-existing theories yeah and i think that's the public service that we offer where we look at complex ideas and we take them apart and we see what is their best application yeah now let me explain Let, let me explain where larson's ideas impacted my work and the periodic table. Um, Larson made a big point, uh, and of course he's not the only one to do this, but this is where I got this idea from, that it's very important to specify where you are measuring from when you measure something. You, you need a, some kind of a zero point okay. from which you measure. And my periodic table would not have been possible without that concept because uh, I define an association for purposes of this, of this periodic table as uh, existing when one person's satisfaction is changed by the action of another person. And you can use the word party instead of person if you want to talk about organizations. Okay, so an association exists when one person's satisfaction is changed by another person's action. Now, there's two possible changes. You can either increase the satisfaction or you can decrease it. Okay, now, if you don't have a zero point where you specify where the, um, you know, uh, with respect to which satisfaction increases or decreases, you end up with a lot of confusion. And I've I've got some documentation on people that, that fell into that trap. And so I defined the zero point for purpose of an association as the level of satisfaction that somebody has in the absence of any association with some other specific person or party. Mm. Okay, now, uh, let's say somebody takes an action which reduces your satisfaction. Is that a sanction or is that a withdrawn inducement? Well, if it takes your satisfaction below where it would be if you didn't have anything to do with that other person, it's a sanction. But if it reduces your satisfaction down from above that point, real relative to that person, then it's a withdrawn or reduced inducement. And the whole classification system uh, that I created in this periodic table uh, depends on the sharp distinction between a sanction and a withdrawn inducement. Okay? So involuntary associations are created by unilaterally imposing a sanction on somebody. Guy sticks you up in the park, your money or your life. Jack Benny says, well, I'm thinking, right? Uh, A withdrawn inducement, let's say your employer cuts your salary in half. 
uh, you're already associated, you've been receiving inducements, but your inducements are going to be lower. That will reduce your satisfaction, but it reduces it down towards the non-association point rather than below it. Okay? So that's, if, if I hadn't had that concept of a zero point from Larson's work, uh, I would never have been able to sort out how to classify associations in, into the periodic table. Mm. And that, that is why when I wrote my college textbook, which came out in 1981, I dedicated it to Dewey Larson because I said his thinking about politics facilitated my thinking, his, his thinking about physics facilitated my thinking about politics. And the title of my textbook, by the way, was Thinking About Politics and subtitled American Government in Associational Perspective. And the associational perspective is that what is provided by the uh, the periodic table. Yeah, I love it. Actually, I love it. I love that uh, that it can be boiled down to this this sort of simple metric that can help us orient ourselves towards good and bad legislation. Do you have any? Do you have any stories of Dewey Larson? Well, uh, one of my favorite things he ever said was uh, he reformulated the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. He said, uh, it is impossible to ascertain with great precision the qualities of non-existent particles. And the non-existent particles he was talking about were the electrons that supposedly are zapping around in shells, clouds, or rings around the, the um, alleged nucleus of the nuclear model of the atom. And one of Larson's principal books was entitled The Case Against the Nuclear Atom. And he agreed you could get electrons out of an atom, but he disagreed that they existed as, as such uh, anywhere in the atom. Uh, but but the, since the atom for him was simply a compound set of motions, uh, vibrations and rotations, and you could strip off some of those, and, and, and then they would eject as electrons or protons or whatever, neutrons, uh, but that they didn't exist as such, as separate particles, in the, uh, in the atom. So, uh, he, he, did, he did say that, um, facetiously, that uh, the Heisenberg's uncertainty principle uh, really was that you can't ascertain with great precision the qualities of non-existent particles. Yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting book. I, I read it a while back, and it, uh, particularly the the aspects about the nucleus made a, made a lot of sense to me. Uh, I was horrified when I read it the first time because the first thing I read was his book on gravitation, which I found rather rather interesting beyond Newton, and uh, he. Um, uh, then I read the uh, case against the nuclear atom, and at first I was really horrified by that until he really persuaded me that um, that the nuclear model of the atom uh, was was based on uh, maybe overgeneralization on some uh, experiments with the the deflection of uh, what was it electrons that were being hurled at them. Um, I think 
you know, the thin, the thin foil. Yeah, they're out there for experiments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, one, you know, I, I think it's all very interesting. Um, I, I, I'm a little skeptical <laughs> of starting with motion as a fundamental. I understand that something has to be moving in order for motion to be evident. You know, I'm. No, a, no, Larson, dis- Larson disagreed with that. Right, he says right. you don't have, you don't have to guess. have something because the something, the something itself would be a combination of motions. So, yeah, but motion, <laughs> the concept of motion refers to the change in location of some material. It, it can't be defined any other way. Yeah, does he define motion? Do you know? Yeah, it's a relationship between space and time, miles per second. But space centimeter, is centimeter, centimeters, you know? So it's, but um, centimeters are a measurement, right? They tell us yeah. the distance or the length of some material or space right and so the question is what is you're, you're talking about the change in measurements but what are you well, I mean, you, you, you talk about a change of location in terms of a reference system right but what okay, is located so because, because uh yeah, look you know it looks to me like here i'm sitting here in corvallis oregon and it looks to me like i'm standing still but i know that the earth is is rotating and so corvallis oregon and i uh, lie along with it and moving around uh the the 24-hour uh, period of the earth and we know that the earth is going around the sun and that the sun is moving around the center of the well, galaxy. All these things are material objects, right? That's how they move, right? They yeah, change right. their so, location with respect so, to some, some yeah, other so, material so, objects. That's right. That's right. So, so the question is... And even if you have a wave or a vibration, the way that that's measured is that's measured by the change in the shape of something. The displacement of the surface is yeah. how I would put it, yeah. So like the, the material objects are defined by their surfaces, right? They have contours, they have an inside and outside, and the atom must in some way or another and every other material object must be in some way so such that motion can only be measured in terms of change of the location of that surface with respect to some and time with respect to some standard and just, i think that the idea of the standard is very important here and the idea that you you measure things from a place and that place is what tells you about the value of your measurements like i think that that's something that has been folded into relativity for the last hundred years or so, but I, I think that we don't spend enough time to really integrate that as being part of the way that we do science, which is that when you are making a measurement, you are absolutely informed by the place from which you start and the place where you stand. But at the end of the day, you are measuring something. There is something that is measured. Something is doing something. Yeah. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah. otherwise you have kind of a spooky. Otherwise, you have kind of a spooky philosophy of the world, right? You have you have spirits and you have ghosts and you have things that can't be seen or touched or experienced. It's it's kind of like a multiverse or string theory type of idea because you are purporting the existence of something that isn't there. Right, you're saying that there's a wave, there's a motion, but there's nothing that causes the motion. Nothing moving. There's nothing moving, and so if there's nothing, if there's nothing moving, where does the motion come from? If it comes from the great beyond, is that not a religious idea fundamentally? I don't even know how to begin to talk about that. That's that's way beyond anything that I've uh, I've I've thought about. Right on. 
Um, yeah, we, we constantly come over these issues uh, when we're talking to different physicists. I mean, there's this classical map for territory fallacy too, where people take their schematics and insist that the schema are, are the reality and, you know, it's a whole bag of worms. Yeah. I mean, I think that what, from, from everything that I've heard of Larson's work and the case against the nuclear atom, I think that he's right about a couple of things. Number one, the particle nature of the atom and the electron has been pretty universally accepted to not be the case anymore. Mm, I wouldn't go that far. I, I mean, a particle in the sense of a bowling ball that's floating around. Like, you'll still see it kind of in the, you'll see it in the textbooks where you have the, the Bohr model of the atom and you have the mm-hmm. protons, the neutrons, and the little like swirly electron, but that's not really how people think about it's it. It's not anymore. like a piece of dust. It's not like a molecule yeah, or exactly. something, that's right? What I mean it's by a location fact. where a measurement is made of exactly. some dynamic property. Exactly. And so I would go so far as to say that the way that we look at the quantum world now is more in line with the way that Larson put it, which is that there's motions and vibrations and things mm-hmm. that are measured down there. Yeah. And the next step beyond that for us is, is a philosophical question. Is there something coming from the great beyond that causes the thing that you're measuring? Or is it much simpler, much more prosaic? Is there just a thing down there? Is there, is there actually... Uh, I don't think this is much of a question for us, but this is a question for... This is the question for the world. We definitely fall on the side of there is a thing that is measured, and so something is vibrating. Something is causing the motion. Something is causing the standing resonance, right? I look at the atom as being something that is a standing resonance. And you're right that there's not like a bullet of an electron that can be shot. There is a motion that can be transmitted and the transmitting of that motion is what gives it the properties because it reaches out and it physically touches the other atoms. I mean, the funny thing is it doesn't really matter in terms of technology. As long as you have a really nice schema of how these things unfold, these basic scientific questions just get swept under the rug. And I think that's why people have ignored them for the last hundred years. It's like, yeah, we know electrons aren't little bowling balls that fly around, but it works. Like that model essentially functions enough for us to build incredible global power grids and everything else, right? So it's not clear that these solutions are about to be funded by anybody who's in the industrial sector. Yeah, and it's it's really... Uh, a big distinction between what is useful and what is, dare I say, true, right? Because that's the, that's the question that we occupy ourselves with. We occupy ourselves not necessarily with what can be instrumentalized. And we as a podcast, not we as a civilization. We as a podcast. Well, yeah. well yeah, yeah it's, it's quite possible to get a lot of good results using a theory that's not quite um, a map that's not quite accurate. Uh, I was once at uh, International House in at Columbia, I think University, uh, in New York City. We lived in a building right next door to that place. Actually. Okay, well, some friends, we were, it was a group of us that were Willamette University graduates that were doing graduate work on the East Coast, and we were getting together, I think, maybe sometime during Christmas vacation. And um, we, there was one couple that finally showed up a bit late. And they were quite baffled because they had been navigating there and they, 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 they were having a terrible time finding the place. And it turned out they didn't get there, but it turned out they'd been using a subway map, which didn't jibe exactly with the street maps of, uh, of New York, but still they got there. And Dewey Larson admitted that there have been a lot of very, very fine achievements 
by, by engineers based on the current concepts in science. He says it's not the successes of the current concepts that determine whether they are actually correct, it's the failures. And uh, I think there's something to that. Mm. That's so true, yeah. And, and it so brings about the point that the maps depend on the context. Like the subway map works fine if you're not getting the subway, right? That's right. But that's it's right. not to scale in a way that's useful if you're trying to crawl around on the surface. I remember right. Kylo and I had a terrible argument on the side of a mountain <laughs> one time where we had a topographic, a map that we thought was an accurate topographic map in front of us. It was drawn up to look like an accurate topographic map. It was, map. but they had compressed the vertical axis. And so for every unit, of horizontal space, it was two units of <laughs> vertical space on the map, and so we're saying it's not there, like it said this anywhere on the map either. No, it was, it was, it was, it did, it was but it was like very small print. It and so we're sitting on this ridge, and we're looking at, a, at at the mountain that's across the valley, and we're trying to figure out which which of the ridges on the side of it is the one that's on the map, and there's two ridges that it could be on the map, and we must have spent like. I don't know, 20 minutes going back and forth about how stupid the other one was until we finally realized that the map was wrong and that <clears throat> the confusion was not the fact that... Like, it, was, it was just... Each one of us was reading the map slightly differently and ending up with a completely different conclusion. So it doesn't always work out. <laughs> right, because if you have a map and it's not clear where the limitations of it are, the same two people will look at it and end up having an, uh, a disagreement that is not based in any kind of reality. It's based on a misinterpretation. And I think that that happens a lot in the world where you run into ideas that are not clearly delineated enough, they're not communicated clearly enough, they're not defined well enough, and people will break their swords over who's right as opposed to going back to the starting point and setting their definitions making sure that they agree on the fundamental physical questions that it, it always happens yeah, at the that, that, it always happens yeah. at the edge of knowledge right it's all these this is, it always gets spooky at like the far reaches of what we understand that's where clarifying questions come in very handy when you you think that maybe you disagree with somebody but you need to ask them some clarifying questions I'm planning to write an article about this in connection with Whoopi Goldberg's comment about the um, the, um, the Holocaust not being racist. And I, I would argue that was a first-rate situation where somebody should have asked her some clarifying questions uh, before they started jumping up and down all over the poor woman, you know, for because her concept of where racism stopped and started was a little different from um, from uh, from theirs. Yeah, and I, I think that in science, definitions are really important, which is why whenever we talk about the Dewey Larson stuff, it's really, I think that it comes down to the fact that his definitions for emotions aren't the same as the definitions that we use in-house. He doesn't have a physical definition for it. And so what it always comes down to when there's these disagreements about theories is that there are some theories that don't seem to be based on a physical nature of reality they're based on kind of a spooky something when there's because because you were talking about this cosmic place where the speed of light is faster than it is and everything no no the, the speed of light is not faster than it is it's it's uh it's the same uh it's just that in the cosmic sector other velocities are higher than the speed of light right uh, and in the material sector they are lower 
and the speed of light. And the speed of light is the point where the two sectors overlap. And, but it's a, it's a sector that's undetectable, right? The cosmic sector. Well, Larson would disagree with that. He argued that we had lots of evidence of um, phenomena where there's interaction between the two sectors, but let's not get into that, for heaven's sake. It's it's really um, not possible to discuss this uh, in a meaningful way, I would say, for for your audience. Fair enough. Certainly not possible uh, If anybody else who's listening and knows somebody or has been studying the heck out of Dewey Larson and wants to come and talk about it in a meaningful way, I would love to do it at some point yeah. but yeah let's talk about the power grid that's another thing that you spent a lot of time thinking about well and um i i was thinking about how i uh, first came up with this concept about 1972 and i think well that's a long time ago but i think that it was my effort to sort of set up a a project that would force the United States and the Soviet Union to cooperate with each other. Remember, this was sort of at the peak of the Cold War. Uh, the, the Vietnam War was still going, uh, sort of proxy part of the of, of the Cold War. And um, <clears throat> I thought that um, since I, I wasn't sure at the time whether uh, large um, large currents could be transmitted in cables underwater. So uh, my, my idea was that uh, we need to use solar energy uh, to, uh, as, you know, as widely as possible. Uh, I didn't realize how necessary it was going to be quite yet. Uh, and that solar energy is um, intermittent when you look at it from a local point of view. You know, weather and time of day and night and and um, especially the uh, difference between summer and winter and the angle of the sun and the length of the day. Uh, and so I, uh, to, to me, the obvious point to connect the eastern and western hemispheres was at the Bering Strait, which had the Soviet Union on one side and Siberia and American Alaska on the, uh, on the other side. Can I ask you real quick? Uh, what were the, what's the yeah. what's the selling point incentive wise for the east and west to link their power grids together? Because the sun is is shining in the east when it's not shining in the western hemisphere, and vice versa. So you would be able to to um, power up the whole planet with solar energy uh, simply by shipping energy from where you can cur- currently generate it to the other parts of the world that need it. Uh, back and forth. Now, the the advantage to this was, uh, as as I thought of it at the time, was that it was mutual, it was sort of interdependence rather than dependence. In other words, one problem we now see with uh, buying oil and gas from Russia is that they can cut that off to to Europe if they get into um, a situation where it's in their interest to do that. But with the worldwide power grid, uh, if the connection was at the Bering Strait, um, if the Russians were to cut us off, it would be awkward, but 12 hours later, they would be off the air because the electricity would not be flowing the other direction when they needed it. So it was more symmetrical than the unilateral dependence on oil and gas, uh, 
which even at the time, even at that time, uh, it was clear that that could be used as a weapon by um, by the Soviet Union. Now, there's some so, issues though with solar, right? Like it's uh, beyond the intermittency. Solar it tends to be rather inefficient, and it requires an elaborate system of batteries for storage of power. No, you don't need storage if you're going to have a worldwide power grid. That, that, well, you got to drive, right? What? You have to drive your car places, right? Okay, you, you need possibly you need some batteries for cars, but I'm talking about local availability of electricity. In other words, we we don't. If you have a worldwide grid, you don't need to to um, have storage for use at um, at nighttime or in the winter. Especially in the winter, I mean, uh, there's, there's, I can imagine having enough batteries to store electricity for use at nighttime, locally generated. The problem is, the problem is, the problem is that uh, in the winter you're only generating about a fifth as much electricity every month uh, locally as you do in the summer. I, I know that from the the, the panel, the, the PV panels that I have on my own roof. And you're not going to find a way of storing enough electricity in the summer to last you through the winter. Not, no, not that's not what I mean. I mean, I mean, local storage, like, you, you, you know, you need a capacitance system because you don't always need to run all of the power at once. It needs to be coming on and off in a very controlled fashion. And, and actually, that point you just made about the winter and summer is really interesting because it almost demands that you link with the southern hemisphere. Yes, yeah, that, that, that was where I was wrong originally. Uh, I, I assumed the most important connection would be east and west. And when I set out a year or two ago, to, I spent about nine months writing a lecture on wiring up the world for the local academy for lifelong learning. And I, I determined at that point that the north-south connection was going to be much more important. And I think originally we may end up with two networks, one for the, um, this, this hemisphere, North America, South America, and possibly Antarctica, and a separate one for Europe, Asia, Africa, and Australia. Uh, although I think connect, ultimately they would get connected together because we can take maximum effect of the time zone effect, since peak demand for electricity doesn't always occur simultaneously um, everywhere in the world. So anyway, you're right that the north-south connection is going to be critical. Does it worry you linking everything into one basket like that? Does it in any way threaten the stability? Like if we have like a power surge on one part, right. will that affect? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Let me see if I can find my note on that. Because we were talking to, I think it was somebody at NASA. I think it was maybe Nikki Fox uh, with the Helio probe business. And I know I don't know who it was actually. Now that I think, is it Nikki? Mm -hmm. But she was talking about the best case scenario was that we could shut down different sectors individually without having to shut down the entire grid. And I'm sure like there's ways to safeguard this. You know, just basically put elaborate mm -hmm. switches in between the different sectors. Um, but do you see those as compatible? Those ideas? Yeah. Now here, here is my list of things about some in my lecture. I'm just getting my lecture notes here. Uh, for that wiring up the world lecture. I said some dangers of a solar grid. One, too many eggs in one basket, which is what you're asking about. Two, Carrington event. And you're familiar, no doubt, with the Carrington event in the middle of the uh, 1800s with a very strong um, uh, surge of energy from the sun burned out a lot of um, the rudimentary 
um, cables uh, that they had at the time. EMP, electromagnetic pulse, uh, which could be set off by um, uh, atomic explosions up, up in the stratosphere. Labor like troubles. Terrorism, basically. Yeah, yeah. Well, labor troubles. And finally, sabotage and terrorists. That's mm. my list mm. of the awful awfuls. That, uh, so the sun and bad guys, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so I, I, I think we need to move to solar energy if we're going to avoid wrecking the climate. And uh, in order to move to solar energy, we've got to combat this intermittency problem. Uh, and rather than try, trying to develop, I mean, there's some limited availability for pump storage, uh, where you change the, the elevation of water and then pump it, let it flow back down uh, when you need more electricity, and you some some room for batteries. Just flywheels. I, just, I, I, I simply cannot imagine. I cannot imagine having enough storage to take care of winter. Mm. And that's where the where the worldwide grid comes in. And uh, it seems to me that that, uh, and we're moving in that direction. There, there's already a large number of high voltage DC circuits that are being built, and some are already operating at, at rather long distances. Have you run run the numbers on this? Like, what kind of uh, solar panel systems would be necessary to actually pull this off? No, I haven't. But people have done that. Okay. Because my understanding is that solar power is extraordinarily inefficient, even the panel structures. They require mining of very expensive minerals, um, usually by slaves in Africa. Um, Yeah, and they they have to cover huge areas. And, you know, my favorite power source is obviously nuclear power. And I'm curious how this idea stacks up against that. I I mean, obviously, there's, there's some dangers with nuclear, but it's been by far and away the most safe way of generating power that we've found despite so far. the accidents yeah there's been a few accidents but you know coal is killing people right this second well i think i think that atomic power can probably be made foolproof i'm not so sure it can be made naive proof sabotage military look at the 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 um, the, the power uh, uh, station in ukraine that is currently uh, uh, the focus of uh, some concern um and gorbachev Back when he was the uh, head of the Soviet Union, pointed out that uh, if there were a general war in Europe, without even using any atomic weapons, if we had one on the scale of World War II, that it would probably make the whole continent uninhabitable because of the damage. There's, you know, there's dozens of atomic reactors operating in Europe, and they would, some of them would be bound to be damaged. And, uh, and uh, the, the, so in other words, if we're going to use atomic reactors, we're going to need peace. And if we're going to get, you know, that, 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 and, and the same thing, uh, we'll need at least enough cooperation to keep a worldwide grid operating, because although there would be redundant channels, since it, it is true that you can send large amounts of current underwater now uh, in high voltage DC um, circuits, so we wouldn't have that monopoly of the connection at the um, at the Bering Strait, mm. but there still would be a limited number of uh, different ways of shipping electricity from one place to another, and so the, 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 a general world war could still wreak, wreak havoc havoc on, yeah. on the worldwide grid. Uh, I love it's, the idea of of getting away from power sources that can be dangerous to us. 
One, one thing you might not have thought of um, that's very close to my heart is uh, related to solar power and actually is, is capable of generating <laughs> the same output is evaporation harvesting because it also relies on solar and it is also uh, to some extent needs the sun, but it's less intermittent. You can build up a, a moisture gradient overnight, for instance, and let some of it out as you, uh, as you wish and get demand uh, met in that fashion. So I think evaporation harvesting is another, it also saves water because you can mount these devices over top of reservoirs, which slows down evaporation and you can pull out the same amount of power that you would get per square meter from solar power. But how, how, do you, how do you pull out power from evaporation? Yeah, so you have to have a water responsive material that essentially changes shape as it dries out. And you can couple some of the power that you get from these muscles uh, to opening and closing shutters that are capable of negotiating the humidity gradient, essentially. And there's a few groups that have played with these. Uh, my, my group back at Columbia was working on some very small prototypes of these devices. Um, and they were actually using bioengineered uh, materials for this water-responsive material. And it seems rather promising. It's just that displacing the extant power type like giants and getting them interested in something other than what they're already working on and have the infrastructure for is very difficult. It's a very politically locked up scene, this industrial sector with regard to energy supply. It's very much locked down by the interests that are there. And so we've had a very difficult time marketing the idea, um, despite its promise. But I think that it could go really well hand in hand with solar power per se, straight up <laughs> solar power. Um, but I, I always, I couldn't avoid the, the opportunity to plug evaporation harvesting because <laughs> I think that's, it's very important and, and it's potentially quite useful for, for places off the grid too. Um, so yeah, check it out. <laughs> There's a lot to read right, about there. Right. You might enjoy it. What do you think, Dr. Benbury? I mean, I think that it's the, the future is dependent upon creative solutions and whatever whatever can be put on the table and whatever can be brought into reality in a way that keeps us from burning stuff is probably a good idea burning stuff killing each other <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm down on the burning stuff so i, I think that i'm i'm up on the renewables uh, we're going to have to re we're going to have to re-engineer a lot of production so as to make everything recyclable. Uh, that's already kind of on the table. It's working. It's, yeah. it's coming along. Yeah, oh, yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of conversations about plastics and getting rid of plastics and finding ways to use biodegradable materials, but also right. closed loop economic systems. We early in the days of the podcast, we talked to this woman uh, Erica Ilvis, who's working on a project called Deep Green which I'm a little skeptical about because they're going to do deep sea mining to pull out these nodules of rare earth minerals from, you know, ocean canyons. And of course the environmental impact assessment said that they weren't going to affect any kind of environmental problems in the world. But you just, the, the cool thing about the project was that they were like, look, if we mine it, we're going to create a closed loop system so that we never lose any of this material in the supply chain ever again. Like your cell phone will be tagged for where the rare earth minerals came from and you'll be on the hook to return them in the same way that you have 
money for a bottle deposit right now. And then the phones can be taken apart and brought mm-hmm. down to their raw materials and then used again. Yeah, but you, that'll require a lot of reverse engineering because uh, they're not they're not manufactured now to allow um, that that kind of thing. But but there's no reason they can't be. The turnover is incredible, though. Like the I've seen these photographs of just cell phone waste. You know, the, as fast as Apple can crank out a new iPhone, people are throwing away the last iPhone. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. they they don't really have market value after the new one comes out. They're not objects. We we've entered into a weird time in human development where the objects that we use and the objects that are that surround us are not objects that have any value to them unless something deep in some some little brain inside of them works. Right? If you have no. a hammer. And the handle of the hammer breaks. You can take the handle off the hammer and put a new one in, and then you still have a hammer, right? Right. Or a knife or anything else. But with a cell phone, it's... Even if you could get the cell phone to power on, the software, once it's no longer supported, basically makes it something that's just this... This is how they squeeze you into buying new computers every few years. And it's it's quite terrifying, actually. Actually, there's probably a political or legal argument going on with regard to the ability to keep your machines going because the right to repair i mean this was a big deal when we were living in new york where they were they were trying to get an amendment passed or a bill passed in new york that guaranteed your right to open up phones because manufacturers were trying to make it illegal they were trying Mm -hmm. to make it so that you couldn't actually repair something because that's against their bottom line if you can just continuously update the object you bought in 2006 i just recently switched over to a new cell phone and it has been a really painful experience because I didn't want to, right? I was like, the only reason that I had to was because it literally, like, the port stopped working. It, it would, there was one cable in the entire world that would charge it. No other cable would charge it. No other, so it was like a very non-functional object. But the process of moving everything to a new place, every single manufacturer has a proprietary system that is you have to learn where everything is again. I sound like I'm 100 years old complaining about, you know. This might be a case for some standardization on ports, for example, which I guess there is some movement in. And there's, there's discussion of the need for standardizing the, um, the equipment for, for uh, recharging electric cars. Because there's several different there's several different standards that are presently the case, and if you end up at a charger that doesn't accommodate your car, it is a little little. Uh, there are adapters, however, I guess that people are uh, are building and buying to allow you to charge a um, non-Tesla car at a Tesla charger, and mm-hmm. vice versa. How do these kind of things fit into the periodic table of associations? Like, how does a how does a law that regulates these kind of consumer uh, product rights. How does that fit? Well, if it, if it's a general rule, it would be okay. Uh, it, it might be All wise companies. or unwise. You'd have to look at it in terms of cost-benefit analysis, because there, there's still the possibility of laws that are unwise or or, uh, or foolish. Uh, and uh, but 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 uh, if it's a pseudo law, then it's not. Uh, you know, if it's not a general rule, then. Then it wouldn't be uh, you wouldn't discuss the cost benefit then. I, I just thought while I have a political scientist on the phone, I, I really want to know how the concept of corporate personhood fits into your uh, your philosophy. Well, well, uh, legally, there's a confusion here between the word person and people. 
and 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 critics of things like the um, well, what is that decision of the Supreme Court? Uh, um, well, it's wrapped up in the Fourteenth the, Amendment. The, citizen, the Citizens United yeah. case, uh, and and they thought, well, people critics say, well, it says that corporations are people. It did not. It's, it says that corporations have legally been considered persons for certain purposes uh, by the courts for a long time. So, for example, uh, there are certain, you know, uh, I don't think you can deprive a corporation of property without due process of law, just like you can't de de deprive a uh, people of property without due process of law. But there are some parts of the Constitution, um, I don't think that corporations enjoy the immunity from uh, self-incrimination. Mm. For example, that people do so. So there's the, the, the corporations are legal persons in the sense that they can sue, they can be sued, they can own property, they can sell property. Uh, it's troubling but, to me because they can't go to jail. Like they can't really suffer anything. They can't pack into their budget. And well, it's troubling to me that there that there's no distinction between human and person in the Constitution. Because they don't have human interests. They don't care if like, the water is undrinkable. They just need to grow. And they're increasingly powerful in terms of how things move on the planet. You know, it's, not, it, it, it's less and less important. Like I was talking at the beginning of the podcast, it seems that people have this sense, whether it's true or not, it seems true to me, but whether or not people have the power to really change and regulate these industries at this point, or whether the industries are leading us around by the nose, they don't have there, any interest other than growth at hand. There, there, is a, there is a problem called regulatory capture, where you set up a commission, to, um, like say the Interstate Commerce Commission, to regulate uh, the railroads, and um, the um, next thing you know, the railroads have uh, gotten control of the Interstate Commerce Commission, and they're using its power to, to protect themselves from competition. So that, that regulatory capture problem is legitimate, but there's still a lot of regulation that goes on regulation of utilities, for example, uh, by public utilities commissions. Um, it, it works pretty well. Uh, and in, in, fact, in fact, when states have tried to deregulate electricity, they've gotten into big trouble sometimes. You look at something like... All right. If I go out and find a way to murder 40,000 people, even if I do it through neglect, what do you think is going to happen to me? I'm pretty sure I'm going to be killed. <laughs> but Not if you don't live in a state that has the death penalty. Okay, fair enough. You think but, I can but, murder 40,000 people? And, how, how do you murder 40,000 people by neglect? Let's say he's in charge of, he's the chief safety inspector of a dam that ruptures. Well, the and corporation, the, I guess, will take the heat for that, probably. They're a private owner of a dam. My point is, like, if I kill 40,000 people as an individual, something terrible is going to happen to me. I'm at the very least going to get locked away and not allowed to interact with society for the rest of my right. life. But if I'm a right. corporation, like in the Vioxx scandal, and I, I know that I am willingly allowing thousands of people, tens of thousands of people to die, nothing, what, I get a fine that I can just write into my budget for next year and absorb very easily? Like, it's insane to treat corporations as people, but 
not. What would you? What would you propose to to remedy this problem? You should be able to destroy the corporation. You should be able to annihilate the corporation the same way that you would annihilate the freedoms of a person who did the same thing. Right. Okay, and what would you do about the people that own stock in the corporation? Then are you well, going to be depriving them of? Yeah, it's a great are you question. Going to be depriving them of property without due process of law. Well, they're investing in it, right? So I think it would it would add a new category to investments that was actually looking at the ethical behavior, not even in terms of ethics, but just in terms of legality, such that you weren't investing in a risky group that was prone to fractures that might get it destroyed or get it thrown in jail or, or whatever or else. That was that was willing to do dastardly things behind the scenes. Like if you're investing in a corporation and you haven't done your due diligence to make sure that the corporation isn't killing people, then you lose the money. And they'd be rated, I'm sure, right? There's rating systems that would crop up. Like, it would just yeah, be a course. new new factor because right now all trading is just done based on growth. And it's absurd. It's well, didn't, I just hear you, didn't I just hear you uh, listen an hour ago worrying about government getting too big and too bureaucratic? But I mean, and now we're going. Now we're going to uh, be uh, letting the government destroy corporations. I mean, I think that somebody has to. Like, you can't have you cannot have a program in the world that is running wildly out of control with non-human no, interests. Non-human interests with nobody that has a lever on that handle of power. Like, if you if you create a program whose whose parameters are devour everything possible in order to increase the bottom line and you don't have an off switch that you can throw on that because you're worried that people are going to lose money just another variable in the equation that's human like that's all i'm asking for and i don't know the proper channel to accomplish this i, I don't know if i assume it's legislative um, I, just, I think that we have this really weird kind of thing about government where we're like yo government can definitely regulate us and we're totally fine with that but the minute that government starts to get involved with corporations and interrupting their ability to make money Everybody's really squidgy about it. And I get the fact that, you know, oh, communism, we don't want the, the government to take over or industries or fascism or whatever. And I get that. But the idea that we would be so skittish about the ability of the government to come in to say, hey, that's you can't kill people and still continue operating. Like the pharmaceutical. Well, the question, the question is, were they doing anything illegal? Yes, so, I some, think sometimes, so. Sometimes, sometimes there are unanticipated consequences to actions. No, 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 no they knew. paid they, they, for the Viag scandal. They paid millions of dollars in fine. Like they, they had memos that the executives were aware that thousands of people had died as a result, and they hid those memos, and it came out later. I mean, it was a real. It was a real, like, Holocaust-level event. I'm not, I'm not familiar with that case, but what about okay, the tobacco? It, was, I mean, it wasn't millions of people dying, but it was, it was definitely a mass what, murder. I, I think that there was, like, 40,000 people. So the Vioxx scandal was Merck. Merck still operates with... Oh, they're doing great, actually. Um, and so what it was is that they knew that um, there was a... It was cardiac risks. A cardiac risk, yeah. So people were dying. It was an increased risk of heart attack and stroke. They eventually, in 2004, withdrew it from the market. But they think that um, because they withheld information about Vioxx's risk for heart disease and stroke, they uh, led to between 88,000 and 140,000 cases of serious heart disease. 
because 80 million people around the world were given this drug. And hold on one second. Let me see this. Oops. I'm not familiar with that case, but I am familiar with the case with the tobacco companies that uh, resisted the uh, idea that, that, that smoking was harmful. Um, to yeah, the health. But, the, but those companies still operate, right? I mean, if you look at a chart of lung cancer rates versus cigarette sales, yeah, I mean, correlation the, does not imply causation. But the thing of it is, they weren't doing anything illegal, and there have been a, a good deal of clamping down, and, and uh, we, we have um, plenty of um, uh, people um, have an opportunity to be aware that it is a um, not a good uh, habit, and they still are willing to take their chances. I don't actually have a solution for this. I, I just really want to kick off the discussion because I think that it's a very important topic for future uh, iterations, you know, for, for the really for the young people who are coming up and going to inherit the government from us. And, and I, I really want to, if anyone's listening to this and knows somebody who has brilliant ideas about this matter, please send us an email and we will pick up this discussion there. Yeah, because I think that it's one thing to criticize and to recognize that things are screwed first up. First step. And that's, uh, it's the first step, but you can't really spend too much time there. And I think that we've spent probably, honestly, kind of since the 60s there, where everybody's looking around and they're like, hey man, things are really screwed up. And everybody agrees that they're screwed up. But there's not really a lot of creative solutions that will fix it. And everybody, and I think that something that you said is really interesting. We're all vested in the system because everyone owns either index funds or they, I mean, let's say just index funds. I mean, sure, people stock trade, but every single person that has a 401k, a Roth IRA, any kind of investment account is basically tacitly in agreement with the way that the surf the system runs and is unwilling to make any large changes to it because they're like well wh what about what about my retirement account what about my pension what about my whatever and so all of these actors are able to continue operating within the system because no one wants to jeopardize their own security and so we are all in collusion every single last one of us that plays the stock market is in collusion with the way that the earth is being destroyed. And it's going to take some really creative strategies to actually start to address that. Because you cannot, like you said, what about all the people that are going to lose their money? You have to have some kind of solution for that that is not vindictive or excessively punitive. But you also can't allow this to continue because this will end our civilization. I don't think that it's going to eradicate the species. I don't think that humans are at risk of going extinct. I think that that's an absurd proposition. But I think that our civilization might. And that's really scary because it will go, if it does go extinct, it will go extinct because of the systems that we have created and allowed to propagate wildly. And that's a pretty heavy burden to bear for the future generation to know that, you know, <laughs> Their forefathers and foremothers did this. And so I think that you're right that we gotta search for solutions. But we can't expect we can't expect it to come from just you, Dr. Delespinesi. <laughs> well thank you. I appreciate your generosity in uh, in saying that. 
Where can people learn more about your ideas? Uh, I, I would like to definitely put some links in the description of this episode. Do you, uh, are you happy to correspond with people? Do you mention sure. social media Certainly. at all? Do Certainly. you have a website? Um, I have a website, uh, delespinesi.org. Excellent. We'll put that in the description. And then uh, this Newsmax column, is there some easy way for people to find that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, just just uh, Google my name uh, and uh, you'll, you'll, uh, you could even limit it to, to Newsmax.com if you want, and that would take you probably to a, um, a listing of my articles. Uh, or at least you can get, it'll get you there and get you to one of my articles and then you can um, click on my name at Newsmax and that gives you a list of all my articles going back for five years. Mm. Excellent. Cool. Yeah, and, and, and you can do the same thing with LA Progressive, mm. which is running a lot of the articles too. Excellent. And they show up in some newspaper columns. Uh, my website, delespinesi.org, has um, a bunch of links to uh, several of my books uh, and to uh, information about uh, how I came to develop the, uh, the um, periodic table. Very cool. Excellent. Yeah, and I really appreciate your commitment to remaining nonpartisan and trying to actually make a scientific ob objective analysis of the theories as they unfold and, and of the events. So, yeah. Thank you so much for coming by and talking to us. And well, thank you. Thank you. A lot. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Well, so thank you. Good. I've always enjoyed this. All right. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye.